be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Always as part of Laura's consciousness was the worry that her parents would divorce. They weren't volatile and didn't fight, not the way married people fought in books or movies, but instead picked at one another in a sly, monkey-like manner, each baiting the other until one of them might be forced to slam a door or yell at the dog. This month, we're going to hear Naked Ladies by Antonia Nelson, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 1992. The story was chosen by Laurie Moore, who is the author of eight books of fiction, including the story collection Bark and the novel A Gate at the Stairs. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Deborah. Now, you read this story when it came out in 1992? Yes, I did. I did. And I actually have even taught it Uh in creative writing classes. but I'd sort of forgotten about it. And then when you asked for me to think of something, then I remembered this story. Uh-huh. What, what struck you when you first read it? What, what made you want to teach it? Well, I love stories that are about children discovering the mysteries of their parents' marriages <laughs> and, um, and also having as the observer of that marriage someone who is potentially sort of a writer or an artist. And in that way, the story reminds me of Juno Diaz's Fiesta 1980 and also of Alice Monroe's Walker Brothers Cowboy, where the child who is watching is the one who is really the sensitive literary one. And the siblings are not really on board with the same observations that the central intelligence is organizing and, and putting down. I mean, the character in the story is 17. She's not a young child, but is it harder as an adult to put yourself in that mind observing adult behavior than it would be simply to write it from the adult's point of view? Well, she has access. You know, this is a third person. um, This is a third person point of view and, and in the past tense. So she has access to a kind of adult... Um, perspective and organization Mm -hmm. of the material, but she doesn't ever really leave Mm -hmm. the character's sensibility until there's a flash forward at the end, which maybe we'll talk about. You know, so there is an adult organization. And so in that way, the third person past tense is the perfect way of telling the story. And it was a relatively early story for Antonia Nelson. She was, I think, 31 when it came out. It was only her second story in the magazine, and you know, many more have been published since then. Do you think it's representative of the way she went on to write? I've read other stories of hers, but this has been my favorite of everything <laughs> I've read. So I just, I just keep going back to this one. And, of course, I love the idea of the bohemian dad and that there's an interest in American social class and how it affects young people, especially. But I can't say that I'm an expert on her entire oeuvre. I'm sorry. But I just, <laughs> okay. just like the story. 
I'm, in fact, I wasn't even sure how you pronounced her name, whether it was Antonia, like my Antonia, <laughs> or Antonia. How did you say it? Antonia. An- Antonia, not yeah. Antonia. No. Okay. No. All right. I think I taught this story to my students, telling them that it was by Antonia Nelson. Well, but she, she goes by Tony anyway. <laughs> I know she goes by Tony, but I don't know her, so I don't feel I can be that familiar. Um, at any rate. All right. Well, why don't we dive in? Um, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Laurie Moore reading Naked Ladies by Antonia Nelson. Naked Ladies. Laura's family was going to Easter brunch at the houses. They were invited every year by Mr. House, but this was the first time Laura's mother could accept. Mr. House called the party his Easter frolic, and Laura's father never wanted to go. Frolic at the house house, he always said, will pass. The family was going this year because he was away showing his paintings at spring arts fairs. He had got lucky, securing more booth spaces than ever before. Already he'd been gone for a month, traveling in his old land cruiser among his canvases, phoning home every few nights to report on his sales. Of the eight checks he'd sent to them, only one had proved rubber. Laura's mother mailed a letter to the woman who'd written it, chastising her for behaving badly. The letter came back from Las Vegas, marked, No Longer at This Address, and Laura intercepted it and burned it in the backyard before her mother got home. Laura's mother raised other people's children. That was her job. She departed each weekday morning in order to arrive at the houses before the three school-aged children left, which meant that her own family had to fend for itself. The youngest house child, four-year-old Mikey, had Down syndrome and was her main responsibility. Mrs. House, who blamed herself for his condition, could not be counted upon. She sometimes spent the whole day lying in bed, circling catalog merchandise and punching 800 numbers. There were four house children, two boys and two girls, just like Laura's family, except not like them at all. The house children were neatly spaced, like elections, every two years, ten, eight, six, four, while Laura's family was helter-skelter, seventeen, thirteen, eight, and seven, testimony to their parents' ambivalent feelings about kids. In fact, the two youngest, her brothers, were the same age from October until December, which made Laura acutely embarrassed about the obvious recklessness of her parents' lovemaking. When she was younger, when her mother first began working for the houses, Laura longed for the same tidy procession of children, longed to recite the healthy, even numbers of their ages. If she could have, she would have arranged for a new sibling to arrive every two years, until there were eight or ten of them, because she loved quantity as well as orderliness. It proved stability, something aggressively substantial. The houses did not call Laura's mother Mrs. Lachlan, but Nana, a name Laura found irritatingly intimate. Laura's father said that it made her sound like the family sheepdog. More than he hated the name, he hated the almost uniform she wore, a large green smock with four square pockets. Cover those breasts, Broomhilda, he would say when she brought it home to launder. Hide that butt. 
This gruesome thing pays the rent, she would say to him, wadding it into a ball and throwing it among the dirty clothes. Her husband would turn out his lower lip like a child. Though his paintings sold only sporadically, when they did sell, the family was rich for a week or two. This seemed to him to make up for the other anxious times. Always as part of Laura's consciousness was the worry that her parents would divorce. They weren't volatile and didn't fight, not the way married people fought in books or movies, but instead picked at one another in a sly, monkey-like manner, each baiting the other until one of them might be forced to slam a door or yell at the dog. Laura both looked forward to and dreaded what her parents called scenes. They didn't like to make them, but after one had played itself out, Laura felt a kind of humming glee, as if she had seen a vision of the future, a moment of her womanly life briefly revealed to her. From her parents, Laura had learned to attach weight to the most subtle vocal inflection, the most fleeting glance. She often lay awake at night, replaying the day, hearing again and again words that might have been meant or taken unkindly, biting her nails until she could go no farther down. To the Easter frolic, the five Lachlans wore their good clothes. Their mother debated about a hat. Hats at Easter seemed necessary to her and decided upon a turquoise beret, which sat tilted like a dinner plate on her head. She wore a simple silk dress, a lighter shade of turquoise, belted at her hips with a Guatemalan scarf that Mrs. House had given her after their trip over Christmas. "'You look pretty,' said Laura's younger sister, Pammy, who was 13. "'The houses probably never saw you in anything but your ugly green shirt. Won't they be surprised?' "'Won't they?' Laura agreed, proud that her 40-year-old mother still had a figure to show off. Admiring herself in the mirror, lifting her chin to draw her throat taut, their mother said, and at the front door, no less. They were the first to arrive. The day was a perfect Midwestern spring day, sunny and still. The house's neighborhood was incorporated, a city unto itself in the middle of Wichita, Traffic had to slow to parade speed in order to pass through. Eastboro had its own police department, whose officers drove understated cream-colored sedans instead of the typical black-and-white ones, and whose only responsibility was to issue speeding tickets. Laura's father complained because residents here did not have to pay Wichita City taxes. Laura's friends, crawling through at 20 miles per hour, bemoaned the fact that, of course, the best mall would be built on the other side of Eastboro. Laura tried to pinpoint what exactly distinguished it from her neighborhood, Riverside, because the houses there were older and more stately. The difference seemed to have to do with the small details, the clusters of pansies and antique park benches along the street, the absence of loud city buses and delivery trucks, the long path of black mushroom lights that led to the house door. Nothing stirred this Sunday morning but the songbirds. The Lachlan stood on the flagstone front porch while Laura's mother rang the bell. Inside the house home, a long, elegant bonging sounded, the Big Ben tune, their mother told them. And then Mr. House opened the door wearing a tuxedo jacket over a sweatsuit. Laura understood that this was his outfit. His running shoes were brand new. 
the kind you could pump air into. Nana, he exclaimed. Well, well, Nana, aren't you a piece of work? He was a large-featured, sinister-looking man. His nose was long and wide, his dark hair oiled back from a vampirish widow's peak. His face had the sleek eagerness of a wet dog's. For God's sakes, come in, he roared. Their mother had big breasts, which neither Laura nor her sister had inherited. Mr. House stared at them now, revealed as they were beneath the thin silk. Under his gaze, she lifted her hand to her throat, covering her chest with her forearm. Her face was flushed, and her silver-blonde hair shone underneath her rakish hat. She led her children through the foyer of her employer's house. Mr. House offered them drinks. Laura's mother allowed the three youngest children cokes and accepted a cocktail of champagne and orange juice for herself, turning her wrist to check her delicate dress watch for the time. So early, she laughed. When Mr. House tried to give Laura the same kind of drink, her mother shook her head so that Laura was left with nothing because she was too embarrassed to take a coke in consolation. They were gathered awkwardly in what appeared to be a modern ballroom done in uncompromising black and white and red. An ebony grand piano gleamed in the corner like an advertisement for furniture polish. Beside it stood a brilliant white statue, a life-size naked woman whose head was coyly ducked. A marble drape fell lazily from her fingertips to pool at her ankles. The expanse of bright red tiled floor was broken only by white fur throw rugs, which floated on it like clouds. Mr. House seemed to recall that he, too, had a family and turned his head to shout out their names. Pammy nudged Laura, pointing above their heads to the walls. They were lined with ink drawings, also of naked women, but for one astonishing exception, a painting of their father's, a piece from his over-the-shoulder series. Though there could be no mistake, Laura looked for his signature in the corner just to be sure. There it was, Luke Lachlan, in his typically impatient penmanship. The painting stood out among the women like a beggar. She wondered how it had got here. It was of a winter field, silos and shredded haystacks, wind through bare trees, all of it seen through the large foreground shoulder of a scruffy jacket. For this series, her father had been using dental tools to scrape paint onto the canvas. He'd come up with a polished steel tone by mixing molten aluminum foil with his oils. It gave the effect of frozen metal, a surface your warm finger might stick to. Laura's arms broke out in goosebumps. Around her father's painting and its sober subject, the naked women seemed to preen, silly and moneyed. To them, his painting took itself too seriously, like a street character preaching doom on a sunny day. Loosen up, the naked figures implored, their curves and arches like a languorous cat in the sun. Laura's stomach turned with tension, and she began marking time until it would be permissible for her to suggest they go home. The house children trooped in, wearing jeans and T-shirts, high tops and spandex. Mrs. House wore peacock colors, a fashion trick Laura recognized from the discarded French magazines her mother brought home from here. The plumage was supposed to distract from her bulk, but still 
she looked as if she were filled with sand. Like Mr. House, she entered in high spirits, grinning in surprise at Mrs. Lachlan, eyeing the four children in such a way that the two boys stepped behind their older sisters. Laura felt ridiculous in her dress and hose. Her brothers wore neckties and dark suits from a grandfather's funeral last fall. Of course, their wrists stuck out. Their pants were too short. Their shoes were unbearably squeaky. Only unkempt Mikey House kept Laura from burning up in shame. He had loped over to her mother and thrown his arms around her knees. Mrs. Lachlan ran her fingers through his stiff hair, and Laura saw she loved him at least as much as she did her own children. In what was obviously a ritual, he reached for her wedding band, wrestled it from her finger, and slid it on his own thumb. He misses his nana, don't you, Mikey, said Mrs. House, unjealous. And here she is, come to see you on a Sunday. What do you think? Mikey snuggled into Mrs. Lachlan's dress once more, this time leaving a large, wet spot at her crotch. No one else seemed to notice, though Laura saw her mother's lips crimp as she brushed her palm over her lap. This, Laura realized, was the reason for the smock. Gently, Mrs. Lachlan directed Mikey's mouth away from her. Now that he had attached himself to her, she seemed more at home, and she asked the other houseboy, Frank Jr., to show her family around. Kitchen, he said as he led Laura and the others rapidly through the house. Dining room, pantry. The doorbell began bonging again, and shrill greetings could be heard, women's voices rising in exclamation, then falling into confidences. Mr. House booming out, well, come on in, you old son of a such-and-such. The tour terminated at the back of the house in a plushly carpeted bedroom that had no windows. They had gone too quickly for Laura's taste, ten-year-old Frank gliding through each room in a bored, mature manner, reciting square footage, flipping on lights for a moment, then extinguishing them. He gestured toward paintings and statues, mentioning the names of artists, until he realized his guests had never heard of them and were not impressed. This bedroom with no natural light was his, and it was with true enthusiasm that he now showed Laura's brothers his playboys stacked behind his small television. I have my own subscription, he said, pointing out his name on the mailing label. Dad got it for me. He did? the boys asked in unison. Frank nodded. He was tired of me stealing his. Laura's brothers settled happily on the rug, each with a magazine. Pammy, who often didn't know if she ought to stay with her brothers or go with her sister, finally gave in to curiosity and shyly hefted December's issue, folding herself into a cross-legged position on the floor. Left alone, Laura returned by the route Frank had just taken, moving slowly this time through the rooms. The house was full of things, each wall hidden by furniture or art, and by beautiful and unbeautiful clutter, like department store displays, pillows and decorative knickknacks, large vases sporting wheat stalks, needlepoint footrests, porcelain dolls, exotic foreign masks, and figurines. Laura wondered if her mother was tempted, as she was, to pretend she lived in this modern palace. It was cave-like, and there were many rooms that seemed, without function, merely pretty. 
rooms one retreated to for contemplation. They appealed to Laura for that reason, that and their cleanliness. Each had a peaceful view of the vast lawn, the ground, she imagined it was called, where guests now clustered like floral arrangements. In one of the rooms rested an immaculate easel, and Laura pictured Mrs. House sitting there, looking out over her estate, using a pristine set of watercolors to render a sunset. The stool before the easel was padded and spun smoothly around. In the corner stretched an old-fashioned chaise lounge, rosewood and velvet. Laura could not help comparing this to her father's studio, which was the back porch, in which stank of mineral spirits, oil paints, and cat litter. His easels, all of them, were chaotic with splattered color and were mended with duct tape. Plastic weatherproofing covered the windows, obscuring the outdoors. From the ceiling hung bare 200-watt bulbs. Beside his feet he kept an electric space heater turned on, a fire hazard her mother always claimed. When her father was home, Laura often sat in his studio with him, listening to him talk about his unsavory and impoverished Oklahoman family, his dismal yet serendipitous life's journey. She was the only one of his children he allowed to stay while he painted. The others always wanted him to paint a particular thing, or if not that, then to explain what he was painting, and then felt free to criticize. But Laura was too nervous to do anything more than simply watch him. She brought him his Earl Grey tea with a squirt of honey in it and sat on a small metal stepladder until her back ached. With the heater on, the porch provided a cozy and heady atmosphere. She'd cried when the gallery in Chicago that showed him had gone under, leaving him and his work to the mercy of arts and crafts fairs. Out of Mrs. House's painting room led two closed doors. The first Laura tried opened into a bathroom. Hey, shouted Mrs. House, who sat inside with her jumpsuit around her knees. Laura slammed the door and stood squinting, willing the thing to unhappen. From the lawn, she heard a group of men laugh together as if at a punchline. A beach ball swapped the window, then rolled away. Mrs. House's bare flesh, in the glimpse Laura had, was astonishing, plentiful, melting over her like vanilla ice cream. The second door, she opened it tentatively, revealed the kitchen, where the caterers were heating food. They looked at Laura with disdain, as if she must live in this house, or one like it. Laura moved briskly through the ballroom, through vaporous clouds of different strong perfumes. A glass fell from a woman's slim fingers and popped neatly into shards. My word, the woman said to Laura, and then walked off, leaving the sparkling mess. Laura found her mother outside, away from the party, and stood in her shadow, safe haven. She and Mr. House were beneath a pink magnolia tree, peering up. Laura had the strange impression that they had been touching, though at that moment they weren't. Little Mikey sat on the ground at Mrs. Lachlan's feet, playing with a basket of toys. He had tiny Guatemalan trouble dolls. The houses had brought back sets for Laura and Pammy, too. A Lego doorway, a small plastic reindeer whose legs had been gnawed off, the connector from a Hot Wheels track, a white barrette, and two metal keys, along with Mrs. Lachlan's wedding ring. 
He had created a game for himself, walking the keys through the doorway, slipping the connector into his mouth to make a tongue, babbling around it to the trouble dolls. See him? Mr. House was saying as he pointed to the tree's branches. Get out of here, you sneaky shit. Laura looked up. A squirrel stared placidly down at the humans below, his head protruding from a small wooden house. The fur at his neck ruffled like a mane. The hole was not large enough to accommodate him, and Laura wondered aloud if he was stuck. He chewed his way in, Mr. House said, swinging his arm as if opening a door, right into a wren house, impertinent little shit. He went on smiling. To Laura, Mrs. Lachlan said, Mr. House loves birds. He builds them houses in his spare time. To him, she said, you'll have to cultivate a taste for squirrels. She took a last sip from her glass, spinning the ice as she finished off the drink. Mr. House went, ah ha ha ha, his face distorted with cracks and crevices. He seemed to laugh frequently, whether a thing was funny or not. Laura did not like him, but for some reason her mother did. At home, she poked fun at him, imitating his monstrous guffaw, his incessant cursing. But here, she smiled serenely at him as he sighted along his pointed finger, which he aimed at the squirrel like a gun. Mikey looked up when he heard his father laugh and now followed the motion attentively as if real bullets might emerge from the big hand. Mr. House said, This the one who wants to be a model? That's Pammy, her mother told him. Pammy's been prancing around in her underwear since she was two or three. No, she said. She paused and rolled her hip toward Laura, then recited the familiar line. This one is the thinker. Mr. House instantly fell into a pose, bent at the waist, Resting his elbow on his raised knee, fist under his chin, he grimaced as if in pain. His tuck's tail touched the pale spring grass. Get it? he asked. Rodan, the thinker? Her mother laughed again. Laura couldn't tell if it was with him or at him. Mrs. Lachlan was sly in her own way, unpredictable and sometimes unkind. At home, she had said, he's no Einstein, but at least he's jolly. At least he knows how to have fun. Jolly, Laura's father had repeated, tasting the word. Of course you two know, Rodan, Mr. House said, rising and unselfconsciously reaching inside his sweatpants to make an adjustment. What with an artist in the house? This time it was his tone she couldn't read. Maybe Laura will be an artist herself. You paint, Laura? She shook her head. Draw, he persisted, play an instrument, compose song lyrics. She debates, Mrs. Lachlan told him. She has trophies, don't you, sweetheart? He made a sour face. Careful, you might end up a lawyer like yours truly. He emptied his glass of ice by throwing it out over the lawn. But probably in public defense, am I right? Laura shrugged. Mrs. Lachlan squatted to put Mikey's toys back in their basket. Her thighs pressed together in the tight silk dress, the fabric between them tense. Mikey snuffled disconsolately until Mrs. Lachlan gave him a kiss on the nose. Mr. House turned his fat, gleaming face to Laura again and winked. Quit this debating baloney, he advised as they approached the house and the other guests. You're pretty. Nothing wrong with that. So be pretty, 
Wear nice clothes. Be a model. You could make a wonderful model. You just have to smile. It was a tradition of the Easter frolic to have an egg hunt, Mr. House told them in the ballroom. He had been playing requests at the piano, his long, wide fingers gliding over the keys while people hummed along. The sun shone without remorse through large, clean windows, reflecting blindingly off the red floor, off the crystal glasses and ice cubes. Every song had an identical, choppy rhythm meant to sound jazzy and light like one-liners. Beside Laura, a woman snapped her fingers a little too slowly. A small man with a strange lump on his forehead danced with whoever would consent. He liked to spin his partners with his fingertips so their dresses flared. Mr. House tinkled a few high keys, like a bird trill, and then abruptly stopped playing. The hunt, he announced. Weakly, the woman next to Laura snapped once more. Mr. House patted her rump when he stood up as if in consolation. He's crude, Laura told her sister as they wandered around the swimming pool, looking half-heartedly for eggs. The first they'd found was plastic and contained a cheap necklace and pendant. Turned one way, Betty Boop smiled under her long lashes. Turned the other way, her mouth became an O and her dotted dress disappeared. Pammy put the necklace on. They found hard-boiled eggs with the beginnings of riddles on them. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Or with the answers because it was a hung jury. And they found chocolates in the shape of naked women, buxom, foil-wrapped little candies nestled in the tender crocuses. He sure likes naked ladies, Pammy observed. She, like Laura's brothers, was enjoying the morning. To them it did not spell disaster, but adventure, something they would tell all their friends about. I think he's having an affair with Mom, Laura told Pammy by the pool. She said it in order to feel her heart race, not entirely concerned with whether she believed it. Bullshit, Pammy said. After she thought for a moment, she added, Dad is a lot better looking and younger and skinnier and everything. Mr. House is kind of, she searched for the right word, gross. Like that matters, Laura told her. The prospect of her mother's affair would give Laura a headache. It was her nature to keep peace, but a small, evolving, renegade emotion made her want something extraordinary to happen. She and Pammy sat by the pool and took their shoes and stockings off, dangling their feet in the icy water. On the other side of the lawn, guests crawled along the shrubbery, still seeking eggs, absurd in their good clothes. Laura's brothers and Frank held grocery sacks for easy collection. Her mother helped Mikey while Mr. House stood on the porch yelling, You're getting hot, very hot, even hotter, and laughing loudly. I bet anything she tells us not to tell Dad we were here, Pammy said suddenly, as if the whole party had come clear to her. No, Laura said. She'll let us tell him. This is her way of getting back at him for being gone so much. While he's away, we're all out here with Mr. House, like he's our other dad, the pervert one. But his compliment, telling her she could be a model, kept lightening Laura's opinion of him. Unlike most people, he seemed to have faith in something besides her intelligence, and she was not above feeling flattered. 
Isn't this place funny? Pammy said. So funny and weird. I never thought there could be a place like this. And Mom comes here every day. That's the weirdest part of all. She pulled her pale legs from the water and brushed off the drops that clung to them. Do you think Dad knows one of his paintings is here? No. If he knew, he'd come steal it off the wall. Laura was positive he had not given it to the houses. Perhaps her mother had made a gift of it, but that was unlikely. For all their curious bickering, she would not have betrayed him this way through his work. So Laura deduced that Mr. House had bought the painting without her father knowing, possibly as a way of pleasing her mother, though Laura understood that it would not please her, and she understood that Mr. House knew it too. It looks so funny with those other pictures, Pammy went on, so depressing and brown. It's not depressing, Laura said. It's just more realistic. Naked ladies are real, Pammy said. They're just as real as a blizzard on a farm, only prettier. Laura didn't want to argue with Pammy, so she repeated what they agreed upon. His painting is all wrong here. Pammy lifted her plastic pendant from between her new small breasts and fingered it in the sunlight. If I was mom, she said, I think I'd like to work here. It's cool. Girls, Mr. House shouted out at them, waving his arms toward himself like a coach. The lawn was so wide that his voice seemed out of sync. Come on, you bathing beauties. Come eat, drink, be merry, and limbo. They joined the party on the deck, passing through a croquet game. The people playing made the game seem glamorous, the disproportion of their size to their mallets not at all silly. Bright wooden balls rolled quietly through the grass and went clock against one another. Mrs. House sat watching the game, feeding a fat black dog on her lap. Laura averted her eyes, hoping that Mrs. House had been too stunned to recognize her when she opened the bathroom door. Here you go, Mrs. House told the dog, handing him a Jordan almond. Everyone was eating. Plates decorated every surface. A melting ice swan swam in a sea of ripe fruit in a budding tree whose two largest branches reached like arms toward the sky. A young man sat with his shirt off, feet above his head, popping stuffed mushrooms into his mouth. Mr. House stood below him, tossing up more. Handle a beer, he asked the boy, who nodded agreeably in answer. At one barbecue, a side of beef spun while at another a whole pig revolved big and pink as a fat child. The caterers circulated with champagne and miniature quiches, dutiously ignoring the goings-on. Laura found her mother again. She had grown dreamy with drink and lay on a padded lounge chair at the far end of the deck, her beret tilted over her eyes to block the sun. Her bare legs were white as eggshell, pale blue veins beneath the mildly translucent skin like splintering cracks. Mikey lay asleep beside her, his feet tucked beneath her knees for warmth. His ordinarily strange features appeared normal in sleep, freckled and pug, and this made Laura briefly sad. From inside, Laura heard the doorbell ring. Until it sounded, she had thought she might want something to happen. Now she knew otherwise. No one else seemed to have heard the long chime, and she waited for it to begin again before she went to answer it herself. Her father stood on the flagstone porch 
investigating the house mailbox to which an enormous black screaming eagle was attached to the claws. Dad! Hi, honey. How's the frolic? Awful, really. Got you answering the door? He stepped gently past her, moving quietly as he always did, as if someone might jump out and surprise him. I was the only one who heard the bell, she told him. We didn't think you'd be home until tonight, she added. You don't say, he said. How was Oregon? Wet, he said. Earthy and impoverished, though happy. They have happy industries out there. Christmas trees and vineyards. Happy, happy. I preferred Nevada. You ought to see the neon. That's too bad, Laura said, just to say something. He gave his shoulders and head a slight shake as if to wake up. I've been driving since yesterday afternoon. He looked at his paint-dirtied plastic watch. Twenty-four hours, I was ready to be home. He ran a thumbnail behind his earlobe, and then nobody was there. Want to wait here while I get Mom and everybody? No. He looked around the dark foyer for the first time. He was unshaven and smelled of his vehicle and the road. No, I certainly don't want to wait here. Laura took his hand, which was calloused and warm like a work glove, and led him along the circuitous route she'd discovered earlier instead of through the ballroom where his painting hung. He followed, grunting in amusement every now and then, dropping her hand to study an abstract painting in one room. Some of it's nice, Laura said about the clutter, but most of it's junk. She waited for him to agree. That's your opinion? He spoke without looking at her, tipping his face so close to the painting that he seemed to be smelling it. This is a marvelous piece, he said, sighing. Absolutely marvelous. Art he admired made him melancholy, Laura had noticed. Her father had once spent $9,000 on a painting. That was before the children were born. It now hung in his and Mrs. Lachlan's bedroom at home where no one but the family ever saw it. I interrupted Mrs. House on the toilet, Laura told him as they left the room trying to cheer him up. He smiled distractedly. Have you been here before? she asked when they came to a patio door. Never, he said, stepping onto the deck. But not, Mr. House boomed beside them, for lack of an invitation. Her mother was where Laura had last seen her, asleep on the lounge chair next to Mikey, her turquoise dress was hiked halfway up her bare thighs and her arms were crossed as if she were carrying on an angry conversation in her dream. She was deeply asleep and looked cold with Mikey curled against her so trustingly that Laura forgave her, whatever the infraction, whatever it was preferring this child and home to her own or loving peculiar Mr. House or something else, something private between her parents which Laura might and might not wish to understand. You must be the mister, Mr. House had gone on when he had so suddenly materialized beside her and her father. Mr. Lachlan showed his teeth like a hyena, the expression he reserved for people to whom he felt superior. Let me buy you a drink, Mr. House said, waving in the direction of a passing caterer. Okay, Mr. Lachlan agreed. Get your brother and sister, he said to Laura, nodding toward the pool where all the party's children sat eating chocolate and comparing parents. As she hurried, fearing a fight, she felt the headache she had expected descend like a hat. Dad's here, she hissed to Pammy. Pammy's eyebrows jumped. Oh, man. They each grabbed a brother 
and headed back. Mr. House and their father were standing over their mother's chair, looking at her as she slept. Hey, Dad, the youngest Lachlan greeted his father. Son, guess what? I won third prize in the, what's his name? Bacchus, Mr. House supplied. Bacchus lookalike contest. He held up a Polaroid photo of himself wearing a crown of rubber purple grapes and holding a plastic set of pipes. I got a prize, he added, pulling a fluorescent orange feather boa from his suit jacket pocket. Mr. Lachlan accepted the boa, studying it as it slid like water through his fingers and onto the ground. First prize was Royals tickets, Laura's brother went on, bending to retrieve the wrap. But we couldn't go all the way to Kansas City anyway, could we? He looked up at his father, who shook his head. On the chair, Mikey jolted awake, his face becoming the familiar, flattened, pink-eyed one of Down syndrome once more. Nana, he snuffled to warn her, and Mrs. Lachlan turned toward him without opening her eyes, nuzzling, attempting to close him in her arms. When he would not comply, she pushed aside her beret and squinted up. Her husband waved his fingers down at her. Surprise, surprise, said Mr. House. When Mr. and Mrs. Lachlan agreed the family had to be going, oh, it's a school day tomorrow and he's been driving all night. I've been driving all night. All night, honey, really? Really, all night. Mr. House said he would walk them to the door. He led them toward the ballroom, and Pammy and Laura gave each other agonized looks. Now the crisis would come. The painting would be discovered. Curiously, Laura's mother seemed unfazed by what was happening. She yawned and then shivered, crossing her arms and allowing Mr. House to put his tuxedo jacket around her shoulders as they moved toward the house, Mr. Lachlan in front, walking with his nose tilted toward the ground, a pained grin lifting the left side of his mouth. Goodbye, goodbye, the boys shouted to Frank Jr., who stood with his legs spread on the other side of the lawn, waving and laughing, a perfect, reduced replica of his father. Thank you, Mrs. House, Pammy told the hostess, whom they met at the ballroom door. The group stopped to give her space to pass. You're surely welcome, baby, Mrs. House said to Pammy. See you Monday, she said over her shoulder to Laura's mother as she joined her other guests outside. They could have moved quickly through the room. Mr. Lachlan could have kept staring at the floor, walking on the lipstick red tile, thinking, smirking, but from the yard came a terrible wail. Mikey House had discovered that his Nana had left, and as he barreled at her, running lopsidedly, Mr. Lachlan raised his eyes to take in the pictures on the walls. Without breathing, Laura watched him see them, the naked women, one drawing after another, their rolling, seductive ease, and then his own painting among them like a slammed door. What surprised her was that his eyes jumped over his painting. No alarm, no anger, not even, it seemed, recognition, and concentrated on the nudes. She looked up again. They were not very well rendered, obviously done by a hobbyist, or, as her father would say, a drawer, as in chest of. Laura tried to see what he saw, the round bottoms, the heavy breasts, the faces half-hidden in ink smudge, 
Then her father turned to his wife, who had bent over Mikey once more, calming him. Her hat fell to the floor, and her pale hair covered her eyes. Laura blinked. It could be her, she thought. The woman in the pictures could be her mother, which would make Mr. House the artist. She saw them in a flash together in the house studio, her mother on the chaise, Mr. House staring at her ardently, scratching away with his pens. She wanted to meet her father's eyes for confirmation, but he would not look at Laura. He waited for his wife patiently. In the foyer, Mr. Lachlan removed Mr. House's enormous tuxedo jacket from Mrs. Lachlan's shoulders. She can wear it home, Mr. House said magnanimously. She can, Mr. Lachlan agreed, handing over the dark garment, but she won't. Mrs. Lachlan never went back. She began working for the phone company a few days later. They didn't divorce, and after Laura left home, when she was in college and then law school, she found herself alternately proud of and annoyed by her parents' enduring marriage. As to the significance of what had happened at the houses, Laura could only look to the fact that soon her father acquired a partner to share booth space with and represent him. A single man, a photographer who lived on the road anyway and didn't mind the traveling. And to her mother's fierce tears one dinner time when Laura's youngest brother carelessly asked, what in the world would happen to Mikey House? On the drive across town that Easter, Mr. Lachlan told them the story of his trip west, of how he'd had to spend the nights in his land cruiser. He illustrated by curling himself spasmodically as he steered, because he'd run out of hotel money, of his stiff back and stinky clothes, the way he'd eaten at restaurants that offered two-for-one meals. He kept turning to check Mrs. Lachlan's expression, but she was still sleepy, sluggish, looking blankly out the window, shivering. Even without Mr. House's jacket, every now and then Laura caught a whiff of his cologne, so powerful it was as if he were among them for a moment. Mr. Lachlan's stories weren't pathetic tales. He managed to have Laura and Pammy and their brothers laughing at his bad luck by the time they reached their driveway on the other side of the city. Later, he and Laura drove back to the houses to pick up Mrs. Lachlan's car. Her old maverick had been hopelessly trapped in the overcrowded driveway. Mercedes and Cadillacs and BMWs packed four deep behind and beside it. We'll get it tonight, Laura's father had said, guiding Mrs. Lachlan to his boxy vehicle parked across the street. When he and Laura returned for the car, they didn't speak, as if they were in agreement, as if he too, she thought, had recognized his pretty wife in the mediocre art. It would be easy to say something, and Laura nearly did. A little evidence would go a long way, would twist tight whatever was already tense. Her father pulled up in front of the houses once more. The driveway was empty except for Mrs. Lachlan's car. The windows of the house were dark, as if the family had all gone to bed early, or as if they didn't want to be seen. Your mother's left headlight is out, Mr. Lachlan said to Laura. It was the first thing he'd said in 30 minutes, and Laura tried to make some symbolic sense of his words, but couldn't. What do you mean, she asked tentatively. Her mav, the left headlight. You ought to just follow me home. He stretched his arms and tapped the ceiling of the land cruiser with his fingers. The smell of his sweat filled the front seat. Then he laughed. 
Man, have I driven enough today or what? And Laura saw that nothing was going to happen. They were going to go home and watch television with the rest of the family. The Easter frolic was over. Hoppity hop, her father said, which was his way of prodding her into action. Laura continued to intercept the mail, which one day led her to think about the woman who'd taken her mother's place at the houses. Because the envelope with the Eastboro return address was so light, Laura had thought it might be empty. Instead, a slim gold ring slid out, nothing more. Had her father even noticed its absence? Laura wondered. She slipped the ring on her pinky and imagined another woman interviewing for the position of Nana, marveling at her odd employer, and after taking the job, playing with Mikey, loving him, wondering at his eclectic basket of toys, at the barrette and the black tongue, the swinging red door and the legless reindeer, the two keys and troubled dolls, someone's mysterious, modest wedding band. That was Laurie Moore reading Naked Ladies by Antonia Nelson. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 1992 and was included in Best American Short Stories in 1993 and published in Nelson's collection Family Terrorists in 1994. If you've been having a hard time customizing your workout to fit your new lifestyle these days, you are not alone. This New Yorker podcast is supported by Bulldog Online Yoga, the streaming platform that makes working out both fun and convenient. Build strength, relieve stress, and get your stretch on with easy-to-use apps for your computer, phone, and smart TV. With classes that range from 10 to 60 minutes, Bulldog sets all online yoga classes to custom Spotify playlists that'll have you smiling while you sweat it out. Head over to bulldogonline.com today and get 30 days free. That's bulldogonline.com to stream your first 30 days completely free. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance and conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So earlier, Lori, you were mentioning that this is a story in a sense about class, and we have these two families living in Wichita, each with four children, each with an aspiring artist parent in some sense. One is clearly much better off financially than the other. One mother works as a babysitter, nanny for the other family. How do you think these um, issues of class play out? Well, there, you know, the, the class differences are being observed by Laura, the oldest daughter. And this is the first time she's gone to sort of see where her mother works, which is at the house house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, the house house. Which, you the know. The completely crazy house house. It must have been. It must have been fun to name this family the houses. <laughs> um, I mean, there are several things that are interesting to me about this. I mean, it's, of course, it's presented with criticism, and and the the wealth is described as vulgar. And even Laura, you know, the daughter, understands all of that. She gets all of that down. 
the most interesting moment for me is when the father comes, the protagonist's father, um, Mr. Lachlan, comes to the party that they don't expect him to come to. And he sees Mr. House's paintings, and he's not critical of them. Mm-hmm. And Laura is, and he kind of swats away her remark. You know, she wants to be critical. The loyalty of children to their parents is also a very beautiful thing. So that social class doesn't really play out except as a sort of turning point in the marriage where the father has clearly said, you may no longer work here. Let's, you know, let's find you something else to do. This kind of thing is just existing in this town. And she, you know, there's a little oasis of a community within this Kansas City that is off the tax roll and and it's this wealthy little oasis. They have their own police department and I love the description of the police in this particular community as driving beige sedans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because um, I was talking to Tony about the story and she said that she remembers she got the color of the police cars wrong, and the fact-checking department had to correct it for her. And oh, <laughs> that really? was when she knew how seriously the New Yorker took fiction. <laughs> oh, really? I wonder what she had them driving. <laughs> I don't know. In terms of class, there's that sort of devastating social moment where they turn up at the front door with their hats and, and their funeral suits and their hose, and they're greeted by a family in spandex and sweatpants with ironic tuxedo jackets and so on. And suddenly the members of the family that's ostensibly lower class are sort of put in their place by having risen to an occasion that this turns out not to be. Well, it's also it's also the corruption of Easter, yeah. you know. So the Lachlan family is still, in a way in a more upper-class way, respecting Easter. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been corrupted and demolished by the houses and turned into this carnival time. Mm-hmm. And it's been made almost obscene yeah. with all these little jokes and, and the stuff. The, and the, the, the naked, naked lady The chocolates. naked ladies <laughs> and the Easter eggs. And it's just... So the idea of, yeah, this is like a moneyed family, but is it... But not a classy family. Yeah, I guess you're not supposed to say classy. It's classy is like an unclassy <laughs> word. <laughs> in those terms, in terms of what the Lachlans would think, not right. a classy family. I mean, y- you used the word bohemian earlier. But were you thinking of the Lachlans or the houses? Not the houses. Yeah, definitely the Lachlans. I mean, he's yeah. he's he's an artist. He's living his life yeah. as an artist. He's trying to sort of. You know, even support his family, and and then the poor wife has married a married a painter, but the, but she's signed on for this life of a bohemian husband. But they hit a wall, and this is the party where they hit the wall, mm-hmm. and the wedding ring having vanished, you know, via the child, um, and then returned later is is all part of that, and yet the marriage keeps going. You mentioned that how loyal Laura is to to both parents um, and to their marriage and protective of it. And yet she has those moments of, of sort of joy and glee when they fight. You know, she, she has this comment about how much, how she kind of 
replays their arguments in bed at night and thinks of the meanings and implications of everything, you know, every word they said. Even she doesn't really understand why these moments excite her, these scenes. Um, what do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, she's, her mother says that she's on the debating team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so she notes the way they argue, the way they have their debates, which does not involve actual scenes. It involves a kind of picking. Mm -hmm. And so I think as someone who is interested in debate, she is replaying her parents' back and forth in all of its subtlety and how it does it's not an explosive sort of argument it's a picking that keeps going on yeah. which is much more typical of marriages <laughs> and this is a, a girl who grows up to be a lawyer as as mm -hmm. predicted right but in that moment i at least think of her as as future writer and you mentioned you know stories about children who turn out to be uh, writers that she's getting some thrill out of the dialogue, right? And she's the way a great, it works. She's a great <laughs> observer, so she has a, a writer's radiant powers of observation. And so it is too bad that the legal profession got her. <laughs> but, no, the legal profession got Mr. House, and his his yeah. way out of that is to to draw naked ladies. Yeah, um, that's his release. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. These are men who are who are envious of each other to some extent, except, of course, Mr. Lachlan feels quite superior to mm -hmm. Mr. House, as he should. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the descriptions of their artworks? You know, you have Mr. Lachlan's paintings, which are extremely serious and heavy. You've got all those sort of grim landscapes and these cold metallic silos and haystacks and and... You have Mr. House's, you know, bosoms and, and buttocks and curves and cat-like silly-moneyed women, you know. It's hard to know from the descriptions. I mean, we know what Laura thinks. I mean, mm. it could be that Mr. House is like, I don't know, like Fragonard or something. <laughs> you know, you don't know. Um, and... Again, as I said, that, that Mr. Lachlan doesn't want to criticize the paintings precisely is interesting because he, he, it's just an indication to me, it seems, that he understands just the difficulty of the life and of, of painting at all and doesn't want to disparage that in front of his daughters. Yeah. How do you think his painting got there? Um... And why is it there? Why is it I, hung You know what? I don't ladies? know that I asked myself that question. That's very interesting. I mean, she, Laura has this idea that he put, he bought it unknown to the father and put it there and that the mother knew and that everybody was probably disapproving and, and it was all a kind of, you know, inside joke. But who knows? Yeah, that would seem to indicate a level of Maliciousness. Maliciousness, but also interest in the Lachlan family beyond what you actually think right. Mr. It may House be, has. Well, it may be two painters who actually sort of respect each other, strangely. <laughs> um, they may not approve of each other necessarily, yeah. but they, they respect that aspect of each other. Who knows? We don't yeah, really know. Yeah. I mean, when they actually meet 
for the first time that the the dialogue in their encounter is just fantastic. <laughs> <you know? laughs> the dialogue but, throughout here is very good. I love that final moment where he, you know Mr. House says she can wear my my jacket home, and he says Mr. says she can, but she, she won't. She you won't. Know? She's not going to. No, um, it's this wonderful sort of duel. Right. It's um, a final claiming taking his wife back, but the wedding ring is the last to return. The yeah. wedding ring gets left yeah. behind. Um, and what do you think? Do you think that the houses have this, this kind of debauched, you know, <laughs> meltdown of a party every year? Um, oh, probably. Yeah. Probably. I think it's probably representative of a, the way a lot of people live in the in the well-to-do suburbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I hate to think about it, but it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> Um, Tony said that she uh, originally, in her first version, it was called the Easter Orgy. And the, the lookalike contest was a Jesus Christ lookalike contest. Oh, dear. Um, but that she was actually drawing on very real memories from her childhood and her parents' kind of hippie friends' parties. Um, the Jesus Christ one, actually. I, I just said, oh, dear. But in fact, that might have been better. <laughs> does, she, does she wish she had been able to keep that? Uh, no, I think that's funnier. I think she actually, in the end, thought it was better to, to save her. the fireworks, as she put it, for for the real heart of the story. Um, but even just having the, you know, this this eight or nine year old child come in third Bacchus. place in the Bacchus lookalike <laughs> contest Bacchus is pretty like. hilarious too. Right, right. Why do you think there's a, a Down syndrome child in the middle of this? He's he's sort of. It couldn't be more of a symbol of innocence in this situation, which is not innocent. Well, I I think that it probably is to underscore Mrs. Lachlan's sense of, of how she's needed in this job. It's clearly complicated for her, and yet she also must see that this child has no one but her. And that would keep her, you know, attached to the family. The mother is is checked out. The father's checked out. Um, The little boy adores her. And the children can see that. And that's also complicated. The Lachlan children, which they really only see that one time. Laura Um, makes that comment about how she realizes her mother loves this boy at least as much as her own children. At least as much, right. (laughs) There's a suggestion that possibly it's more. Possibly more. But it helps explain why Mrs. Lachlan keeps putting herself in this position. I mean, she does say, I'm doing this, you know, this pays for the bills. Yeah. But there's also something else to justify it and to rationalize it, and it's, it's in the child. Um, and so it, it's very moving. And all the descriptions of them as basically sort of sleepy mother, sleepy child... I mean, that's they're sitting there. It's a, yeah. a kind of Madonna and child imagery over and over again when the descriptions come on mm-hmm. um, for those two. Do you think that she is uh, posing nude for Mr. House or having an affair with Mr. House? I think she's posing nude. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that she's the wife of a painter and she would be used to that and not think anything of it. Mm. Though it's not a subject of her husband's work, nudes. Well, yeah. n- not not currently. Yeah. 
I'm sure. Not in his over-the-shoulder series. <laughs> not in his over. Well, there might be some there some might paintings be a naked in that shoulder. series. There <laughs> might be right. Um, that's what I think. That she probably doesn't have that many qualms about doing this, but you know, because we don't know, and because obviously, nude modeling can lead to all kinds of things with with a painter such as Mr. House. We can see how the, the discovery of this would cause um, Mr. Lachlan to put the kibosh on it all. The affair, I don't know. She could very well have modeled for him mm-hmm. and thought nothing of it. Except that she wouldn't have told her husband. She wouldn't have told her family. So at the very least, she's living a double life. Um, yeah, And that I may suppose. be part of the fun yeah. for Laura, discovering that her mother right. has well, this exactly. other identity. Right, right. I don't know if it's a double life. It's a secret life. Yeah. It's a life unshared with the family. And that... Every parent has a life unshared with the family, and every spouse has a life unshared with the marriage. It's just how much is unshared and what is the nature of the unshared <laughs> life that may be the problem. Yeah, in a way, they're the most, they're the family that is least bohemian because they're living by all these rules and, and adhering to them and adhering to kind of social conventions in some way. The Lachlans? Yeah. I guess by Bohemian, I don't mean debauched. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would say the houses are sort of debauched and degenerate yeah. and um, dissipated in some way. I, I, I think I'm saying Bohemian just because they're trying to be artists, or at least yeah. the father's trying to be yeah. an artist. But they are, they, you know, you're right. They are trying to do the conventional thing of having... A family, but so are the houses, I guess. Right. Um, Though they were so ambivalent about it, they had a kid and then another one four years later, and then they had two suddenly (laughs) in this untidy manner. The Lachlans. Yeah. 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 The Lachlans, yeah. Um, And the brothers are the same age for a portion of the year. (laughs) I love that. They're Irish twins. Um, Which is excruciating for Laura. Right. Um, I love also this idea that... uh, you know, in a way, Mrs. Lachlan is the is the, the least naked lady in the story because we don't know her life. She's got everything, all these things kind of hidden away under that ugly green smock that are suddenly partially revealed. Um, well, you know, we do see her with um, the little boy. We do see her in the paintings. We, there, she does have some dialogue. She doesn't have fierce dialogue like her husband mm. has. Um, yeah, I think everyone's a little naked <laughs> in this story. So it's aptly, it's aptly titled. I think even Mrs. House, of course, of course, Mrs. House is naked because well, she's naked on the toilet, right? Right, <laughs> with all she's that flesh-like vanilla ice cream. She's seen naked by Laura. Um, so. Every, everyone's naked in their way yeah. here. So, I was reading an interview with uh, with Nelson, um, where she was talking not specifically about this story, but about the uh, the difference between going into therapy and writing fiction. Oh my gosh! And uh, <laughs> she just had this wonderful quote. She said, "They they pull from the same source. One's history, one's mysterious relationship with that history, 
one's dreamlike associative logic when putting together the elements therein. Yet therapy, if the therapist is good, yields solutions, closure, answers, whereas fiction ought not to. Fiction ought to announce the problems, dramatize the problems, display them, yet offer no set answer. To make an equation of it would ruin the story. And I kind of feel that's what we get here, because at the end, we don't really know what's happened. We can't add one and one to make two. We don't know exactly the nature of her betrayal, in a sense, of her own family, if there was one. Um, yeah, I think, but there is, there is closure in the sense that there's movement. Mm-hmm. There's movement out of the house. There's yeah. change has yeah. occurred. So some realization has happened. Laura is not privy to the, to the internal details of the conversation about that change, but it does move forward. I would think that you would want in therapy no closure because then, you, you know, the therapist would make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Here, there does seem to be a completeness to the experience. You, you go through this experience with Laura and you have it and you, you pretty much understand it even if you don't know precisely what was said, precisely what was done. You get the gist of it. Mm-hmm. And this is a chapter in this family's life that has come to a close. Mm-hmm. So in that way, there's closure. Yeah. They're, they're done. They're done with the houses. Do you think it's um, life-changing or at least affecting for Laura? Sure. I think it reveals her parents to her, and it also reveals aspects of, of the social class of the community. There's also that moment where Mr. House, you know, says, you should be a model too. All you ought to do is smile, you know. <laughs> And she's young enough to, (laughs) all you have to do is smile, right? She's so busy in the debating club scowling. Um, But it it touches her and she, you know, she's young enough to still feel like, you know, to like him better. It adjusts her self-perception. It lightens her heavy opinion of him. So she's susceptible to everything and then just taking it all in. Yeah, you can't, you couldn't have an experience like this as a young girl and not think back on it and not have it be significant in terms of its portrait of your own family, portrait of your parents' marriage, and a portrait of the town that you grew up in. Well, thank you so much, Laurie. Oh, thank you for having me. Antonia Nelson is the author of four novels and seven story collections, including Some Fun, Nothing Right, and Funny Once. She's a winner of the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and the Ray Award for the Short Story. In 1999, she was included in The New Yorker's 20 Writers for the 21st Century issue. Laurie Moore also won the Ray Award for the short story. Her most recent story collection, Bark, was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1989. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including ones in which Antonia Nelson reads stories by Mavis Gallant and Tom Drury. Or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Kalalia of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.